If you would please remain standing for just a moment. The message this morning is going to start with some high energy and I need your help. Choir, you have not been uh, prepared for this, but if anybody wants to add in some harmonies in this, feel free to do that, or anybody out there that wants to, let's hear it. fun, wasn't it? Everybody loves that song, right? That's one that we know and that we like to just really belt out when we sing it. So I thought that would be fun for us to do. It is Easter season, a time full of celebration, filled with children laughing while searching for eggs full of candy, full of meals with family, full of pastel colors and Men in the church fighting over who has the more brightly colored shirt or jacket. And full of tired, tired pastors. (laughs) It's a great season, isn't it? Easter's season is the perfect season to reflect on the theology of death. Oh, a little bit of a downer there all of a sudden. The topic of death is usually reserved for funerals and celebrations of life. But in the moments when someone is in deep grief, what they need isn't a theological homily. They need encouragement. And to know that they don't grieve alone. But Easter season, we're already talking about the death of Jesus. So I think it's the perfect time to talk about death in general. Death is something kids start asking questions about at a very, very early age, depending on their life circumstances. At some point, everyone loses someone they are close to. For my kids, it started with a llama at the barn we took our horse to. When Tassie died, Questions started 
to pop up about death. Then we lost a dog and a couple cats. We had a lot of old animals in the house. But those experiences begin to spark lots of questions. These are often questions we're not well equipped to answer. Because if we're honest with ourselves, they're questions we try to avoid. What happens to us when we die? Specifically, I want to look at what happens to professing Christians when we die. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, which of the following best summarizes your understanding of what we as Christians believe happens when we die? Um, now, I'm not saying that one of these is the correct answer or anything like that. These are phrases that I've heard recently, so I want to see, what do you think? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or, or, or respond. Just think about these. A, if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go down there. B, the body dies while the soul goes to heaven. C, we sleep until the rapture. Or D, we go straight to heaven. Do any of those come close to what you believe? Do all of them in ways touch on something that you believe? These are all word-for-word -word answers that I got from a very specific scientific poll that I did last night at 6 o'clock on Facebook. The post has been taken down now, so don't try to go back and look at who answered that. They all contain pieces of Christian theology. Yet even combining all four of them together, they leave out a crucial part of the story. And these are very common responses you would get to this question. And even all combined together, they miss out on a very crucial part of the story. So this question is not, as you know, a new question. But one that goes back to the very beginnings of the Christian church. And indeed, well before that. This was a question that caused divisions within first century Judaism. The culture in which Christian theology began to develop and grow. The Jewish people in Jesus' day were divided by several issues, much like denominationalism in Christianity today. One of the big topics they disagreed on was, what happens after we die? And the early Christians inherited this debate from their Jewish roots. At the heart of the question for the Jews was a polarizing question in general. There were heated debates about this question. Is there such thing as resurrection in general? In the general sense, once a body is dead, is it done? Or do bodies come back to life physically? Is there such thing as resurrection. The Sadducees said no. 
The Pharisees and many others said yes, although I'm not entirely sure what kind of resurrection they believed in. But in some sense, yes. But what about the Christians? They inherited this question. Apparently, in the Corinthian church, there were many saying no. Of course not. When a body dies, the life is gone from it, and it's dead. Goes into the ground, never to rise again. And honestly, this sounds like a lot of modern Christian theology as well. Christians today are much more likely to talk about going to heaven or leaving this world behind or even escaping this body or even singing songs about flying off somewhere into the sky. Yes, that was a setup. Now, perhaps that's not really what that song is trying to portray, but when I've ever heard that song sung, I get images of this concept that when I die, my body is done and my soul flies free. I've escaped that awful body and now I'm finally free. I get to fly away from the physical ailments of having a physical body. Many of the answers I received on Facebook, not just these four, had similar sorts of concept. The body dies, the soul escapes, and flies off to the heavenly realm to be with Jesus. Yet, that isn't quite the concept of afterlife that Paul describes to the Corinthian church. We're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, not the whole chapter but I'd encourage you to go read the whole chapter if you would like to. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at some excerpts from it to see what Paul's concept of death and life after death looks like. Starting at the beginning of chapter 15, Paul says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul's saying, this is the Apostle Paul saying, this is of first importance. Pay attention. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Paul, when looking at the question of afterlife, starts here. He lays out explicitly what the gospel says about Jesus. Christ died. He was thoroughly dead because he was buried. But he was raised again. 
But then notice how much time Paul spends pointing out that, he, that Jesus appeared to specific groups and individuals. Paul goes into detail about these appearances. He wants to make it clear this isn't some sort of metaphorical rising. This isn't some sort of vision or a dream or the hallucination of one person. Jesus rose from the dead and he was witnessed to by individuals and crowds. And Paul says, by his very own eyes. And this is of first importance, Paul says. This was the central claim of the early church and the singular reason for all of the celebration of the Easter season. Jesus Christ died, but he is no longer dead. And so this resurrection cannot only be something that happened in a spiritual sense. The Gospels make it clear to emphasize that the tomb was empty. Jesus' soul had not escaped from his earthly body. His body was transformed. Having established this testimony of Jesus' resurrection, a few verses later, Paul now turns to the question of resurrection in, in the more general sense. He says this in verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Speaking in the more general sense. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our, preach, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul's saying, you can't say there is no resurrection of the dead if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So now Paul has established one thing, that resurrection from the dead in general is to be believed by Christians if we are to affirm the resurrection of Jesus. It's not... You can believe in Jesus' resurrection, but none other. If Jesus was raised, then resurrection, in the general sense, is possible. His argument then gets much stronger in verse 20. And this is where we see ourselves in this theology about death that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this, to me, sounds quite different than the images I get from the song we all love, I'm not saying don't sing it anymore. It doesn't sound like flying away to me. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now, having established the resurrection of Jesus is central to the beliefs of Christians, Paul uses that to say 
That's the first fruits of what will to come. That is the first fruits. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of what is to happen to the rest of us. A bodily resurrection. In the rest of the chapter, Paul discusses in more detail what he means by that. He describes our earthly bodies being like like seeds that are planted and grow into flowers. No, that was the children's moment. Like seeds that were planted and grow into transformed heavenly bodies. There's still a lot of mystery around what this looks like. Around what actually happens. But what I want to suggest to you this morning... That when we even attempt to try to answer the question, what happens when we die? We must include something about resurrection. It's at the very center of what we believe as Christians. That the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrections. Today we will be coming in just a moment to the communion table around a loaf of bread and a cup, which we call the body and blood of Jesus. In a moment, we will break the bread, remembering that Jesus' body was indeed broken. We'll pray a prayer of consecration, asking for God to make them be for us the body and blood of Jesus. But remember, the body we're talking about here is not a dead body. We do not serve a dead Savior. It's Easter. We serve a risen Savior. The body and blood of Jesus is a living body, having been resurrected and transformed. And the life contained in that body is given to us at the communion table as a gift. We'll take the bread and we'll take the juice and we will ingest them into our bodies and they become a part of our body. In doing so, the life of our risen Savior is infused into our life. We too are filled with His resurrection life and in this act this act of communion we are becoming for the world the body of Christ the living body of Christ redeemed by his blood and by his spirit by his Holy Spirit he makes us one with Christ And one with each other. And one in ministry as we go from this place to the entire world. In fact, those lines I just said are embedded in our communion liturgy. You'll hear them again in just a moment. When we take the bread into our life and the the juice into our life, we're becoming one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to the entire world. And that life, it's alive. That power, 
It's available as a gift to us. As we move to communion now, I want you to hear all of those themes flowing through our liturgies together.